Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about family games. We're talking about all the ins and outs of making a really good family-style game. And we're talking to James Hudson from over at Druid City Games. James, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, man. Really appreciate you being on the show. First of all, what, what is Druid City? What did, tell me about the, the name of your company. Sure. Druid City is in Tuscaloosa, where I'm from, where we're based. At Tuscaloosa, uh, the river that flows through there is called the Black Warrior River, and it has huge oak trees. And so when they were naming the place, one of the nicknames was the oak trees were like Druids. And so it's Druid City. Yeah. Gotcha. And that, let's talk about Tuscaloosa for a second. You're a Bama guy. We're both from yep. Alabama, if you guys couldn't tell listening to us. Uh, <laughs> you went to Alabama. You live in Tuscaloosa. I went to Auburn. I lived in Auburn for a huge chunk of my life, played football there. And I just want you all to know as listeners the power of board games to bring people together of such vastly different football uh, <laughs> understandings and loves, and we can come together and talk about games and enjoy that, at least for right now, because it's not a Saturday it's not a That's you know football season Saturday, so we can come to an agreement. The power of board games, James. I have two favorite teams, Alabama and whoever's playing Auburn. <laughs> That's right. I had a buddy. He, he told me one time. He said, "You know, I'd root for for Florida. I'd root for the University of Hell." Before I rooted for Alabama, <laughs> that's that's typical Alabama Auburn talk there. Yeah. I know it, man. I know it. And you you guys have been getting the better of us for the last few years. And that's so, okay. I went to Alabama during the Mike Sheila years, so ooh, I've, I got I've, you. I've put in my dues. I got you. Yeah, I was there, oh eight oh nine, and then I graduated, and then they won the national championship in twenty ten. So I missed it by one season, and I was yeah. super happy for those guys that won it without me. Um, so, you know, you're happy for your teammates, but at the same time, it's like, man, almost so close. I tell you so, what, though, random story. The first time, the only time I've met Cam Newton, right? We were, it was my last semester there and uh, we were just working out. We were training guys had, you know, like NFL tryouts and Canadian league and, you know, AFL stuff. And I was there and I had a couple of like arena league tryouts coming up. And so we're working out training and a friend of mine, our quarterback, he said, Hey, I invited uh, the new quarterback to come and trained with us. And I said, oh, that's cool. And about 10 minutes later, this humongous human being walks in our indoor facility. And I looked at my friend. I was like, why did you invite a defensive tackle? Like, we're throw, like we're running routes. Like, we're throwing the ball. He goes, no, no, that's that's the quarterback. He's like, you get out of here, man. Like, that is yeah. insane. He is enormous. And I remember, you know, throwing around with him that day. He wasn't very good. Like, all every <laughs> pass he threw was either in the dirt or way over my head or, like, way too hard. It's like, dude, I am five yards away. Like, just, right. just toss it. You ain't got to kill me. You know, everything was bad. And I remember going home that day thinking, that guy's not going to be any good. He's too big, so there's no way he can run. And he didn't throw very well. I don't think he's going to be all that good. But he turned out okay. Um, <laughs> he turned yeah. out all right as it as it happened. And so, you know, never, <laughs> never, and maybe this is a board game example, never judge a game by your first play. Maybe, yeah. you know, get in there and try it again because maybe it turns out to be a Heisman Trophy winner and a national champion, and a first-round draft pick, uh, you just never know. You just never know. <laughs> anyway, back to the topic at hand. James, just in case people don't know you, tell me about you. What's your bio? How'd you get into games, get into publishing, that good stuff? Sure, yeah. I, um, I've i only been doing board games for like the last three or four years, so I'm kind of a newcomer. I played Power Grid uh, one time when uh, with some buddies, and I fell in love. I have a little combo story. I came home, and um, saw my kids and 
my wife all had their face in their electronics and you know I, i'm like uh j- average joe just at work all day and i'm like i only get two or three hours a day with my kids do i really want to spend it with all of our faces and tv and phones and so after i played power grid that sent me on the like where do i find games to play with my kids yeah. how do i engage my family and sort of things like that um you know my corporate background is uh, i'm actually moving out of that now after grim forest that has uh, i can't i can't do two worlds anymore so i'm leaving the corporate world getting into a uh, full time with druid city games uh my background's in marketing and advertising in the construction field and so uh, i take all that experience and that kind of ties into uh, the way that i present things and the way that i go about doing what i do um you know me i'm just an idiot from alabama so i just uh you know i think i know things that look good and things that are fun and if you put those two things together, usually you can – that spells a good board game. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And congrats on being able to make the jump, man. You know, Grim Forest yeah. was a huge hit on Kickstarter. Like made, yeah, yeah. you know, what, 400 grand or something like that? Yeah, awesome. a little over 7,000 backers, that's right. That's yeah. amazing. And so super excited for you and being able to, to make the leap. But that's, you've also designed a game, right? Was it a right. Barnyard Roundup? Yep, our first game, Barnyard Roundup. And I've got a whole slew of over here under my left. The, the listeners can't see, but uh, I'm pointing to the left over here. I've got a bunch of designs on the shelf over there that yeah. someday might make it. Um, but, yeah, our first game was Barnyard Roundup, which is uh, just a bluffing game. I wanted something really simple. You know, five-year-olds, four-year-olds, a lot of them can't read yeah. mostly, and they just need something visual that they could play. And I just wanted to make it easy. No matter what, they could just look at their cards and make a claim it ends up everybody ends up laughing. So if you like laughing, Barnyard Roundup's a great game. Uh, some people are like, "Oh, you're teaching your kids to lie. You're, you're you're teaching your kids to think under pressure. That's what you're doing. They they get the cards and they have to do something and they have to try to. Man, bluffing is a is also a very important life skill. Oh, absolutely. Uh, wife comes in and says, "Do I look fat in this dress? <laughs> you gotta know how to bluff." That's right. That's right. Well, a friend of mine, he told me when I was getting married, he said, Gabe, you got two options. You can be right or you can be happy. You're going to have to pick one or the <laughs> other. And he was being a little facetious, but at the same time, that, that is the way it is with life in general. Your boss comes in and you can be real straight, real to the point, real, you know, up front, or you can keep your job, you know, and it involves a certain yeah. amount of bluffing. And I've got kids and you know how it is. I didn't have to teach them to lie. That, they just oh, knew yeah. that. They just yeah. picked that up. And so this idea that deception game or, you know, Board games teach kids to lie. We're talking about cackling, all-out cackles. Because in the game, you've got five different animals, and you're trying yeah. to score. It's kind of got some set collection down in front. But then there's also these crows, and they're negative points. And you have to bluff those. And when kids get to put a crow on somebody, oh, yeah. my gosh, they're cackling, especially when they get it on mom and dad. It's yeah. great. It's great. Yeah, that's one thing I found with kids. Take that games are a hit, man. You know, not yeah. the really mean, you know, complicated, but that simple just bam. Hi, I got you, you know, that they can do to their sister who an hour earlier was just being a, a, a brat, you know, and then they can come in the game and just lay it on them. It's a lot of fun, man. One of the things I, I learned pretty quickly since we're this is also we're talking a lot about design. Yeah. Um, so I did my first game. It was a pretty simple, straightforward idea, right? And I executed that quite nicely. But as I've got into getting to know designers and, and – getting around designers, I quickly learned that is not my strength. You yeah. know, I've got four or five or six good designs, but any good designer has 20, 30, 40 designs that they're working on, and they've got ideas coming out their butt. And I'm yeah. just, it's crazy. So I instantly saw that I was swimming in the deep end, and I did not have a life preserver or floaties <laughs> or nothing. So I went back to the shallow end where I belonged. 
I got you. But tell me about design. Like, okay, so you had this moment. You come home. You you say, I want I want to play games with my kids. I want to spend time together. Sure. But at what point did you make that jump to designing your own game? When did you want to do that? I don't know. You know, I've always been kind of left brained. I've done photography. I've done a lot. You know, I like drawing things like that. I've always had a creative streak in me, and so it's just one of those things where, you know, it it, it an idea came to me, and I actually started with a. a a much bigger, grander idea. It's actually an arena fighting game with some pretty cool mechanics that I still hope to publish someday. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't want to start with that because in the Kickstarter world, that was it. It was very daunting. It was going to take a lot of money to get it to Kickstarter the right way. Yeah. So I really wanted to start with a game that I knew I could manage and kind of learn the system with. And uh, and it was easy to play test because there's a lot of time and effort that goes into play testing. Oh, yeah. And getting the game out and prototypes and sending them all over the world and blind play testing. It's a lot of work yep. for for no money. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so you either got to love it or, or not. And so, yeah, I just had that idea. I saw a clear thing. And when, you know, our prototypes that we made and I played with my son who played it 100,000 times, yeah. he loved it. And our family loved it. And then when we went to the game groups, they they enjoyed it. You know, I, I'm, I'm no idiot. Like Tom Vassell said when he reviewed it. He gave it the the gavel of approval for kids, yeah. Because it, you know it's set up for uh, fa- for family stuff, you know. But we all, I mean, if you look to my collection of five hundred plus games or so, you know, I've got you know fifty games that are very family focused. Yeah. So there's a there's a spot in our collection for those type of games. You know, one of the things like Kanban, we can't all play Kanban every week with all of our. Uh, Family, like if you sit down with Aunt Matilda to play a game, who's never played a game at the family, and you probably need something a little more entry level. And uh, you know, one of the things, uh, a lot of the feedback we got was really enjoy the game, wish it was a different theme. Yeah. And so that's um, that's something that we we listen to, and that we might be solving for everybody at some point in the future. Yeah. Now, with with your games early on, did you try to go to other companies and, and get them published? Did you talk to people at cons or anything like that? I, I definitely talked to, to people at cons. I think those are two different questions. Fair enough. No, I, no, I did not go uh, to other companies to begin with because that is just I'm, – I'm a bit of a control freak, mm-hmm. and I'm a stubborn, arrogant jerk that thinks I can do it better than everybody else. Okay. So there's that. Uh, and so I did, and so I tried. And I quickly learned that I probably should have took it to somebody else because one of the things and – and I tell this now when I do my speaking engagements at any – like a marketing and things like that in the board game world is – you learn a ton when you take a game and pitch it to a publisher. Yeah. Whether yeah. you sign it or you don't sign it, it doesn't matter. Just listening to their feedback, what they're saying. If they're saying our audience doesn't like, wouldn't like this, or the theme's wrong, or this mechanic doesn't sell, they're not specifically attacking you. You should just be listening and, and keying in. And so through conversations after that, I've definitely done a better job of that, but it's definitely one of the things I tell other designers that they have to do. Go to these speed dating things, jump in those. It's good practice to learn to present your game. It's good practice to build a sell sheet. It's good practice to listen and hear all that feedback on things that you could change to your game that might make it more marketable because at the end of the day, that's what publishers are looking for. They're not necessarily looking for the very best game possible. They're looking for marketable games that they can sell. Yeah, I was talking to Daryl Andrews about this same thing uh, just a while back, and it's the difference between a game and a product. Publishers mm-hmm. aren't trying to put out games. They're trying to put out products that are going to make them money. And if it happens to be a really great game, too, that's awesome. 
but it's yep. really about a product and a brand and you know a specific audience and a market and all those things. And so you have to think about that as a game designer. Now, there's nothing wrong with going out and creating the game you love, a game that's that right. is just for you and your group and your friends and all that. That's awesome. Go do that. But now, if you want to really get it published and really have a chance at it, you got to think at it, think about it from a product standpoint. And if you're not doing that, you're going to run into a lot of a lot of walls. But I think you make a great point. Run into those walls, listen to people, and learn how to do it better. It only makes you better. Like um, the majority of people that I see that fail, and then I talk to who who fail, yeah. they're they're stubborn, yeah, and they're unwilling to listen. So um, I don't know how many times I said, "Hey, you need to adjust this on your Kickstarter page," or "Hey, this part of your game's just not going to appeal to the market." And you know, there are certain people, Adam, <clears throat> with little Kingdom Death Monster, who ignore all convention and make it work, right? But you got to understand, that's like the far end of the spectrum. That's that's an outlier. The majority of us have to fit into what makes sense. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with being unrelenting in your vision. Yeah. I'm that way. But so a great example, personal example, is Barnyard at one time had a dice in the game. I loved it. Kids love rolling the dice. I thought it was perfect. Well, I sat down with uh, some blind playtesters, and they said, you know, this game would be a lot better if you remove this dice. Mm. And I was like, you're an idiot, and you're out of the blind playtesting. Get out of here. <laughs> That's the stupidest I thing I'd get out. Right. Well, so then he kept on and kept on and kept on. So one of the things that I, I try to be self-aware about is even if I don't like the way somebody delivers information, is there any truth to what they're saying? Right. So I came home, and I was like, well, okay, just to vet it, I'm going to try the system without the dice and without the variable market. And after the first time I played it, I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> that is much better. Yeah. That is much better and much cleaner. And so, you know, you just you have to listen. It even happened in Grim Forest. Uh, during the campaign, somebody said, hey, on the two-player variant, we need a dice. So it's funny. It kind of swapped into the world there. Like, we need a dice. It'll make it smoother. And we all looked at each other like, of course it needs a dice for two-player. That makes so much sense. So – you know, you've got to be open and, and adaptable, but then also, you know, know kind of the heels that you're willing to die on. Like, I am not sacrificing this part of this part. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, at the end of the day, you are the designer. It is your creation, so to speak. And so you get the last say. But, yeah, it's it's so important not to be so arrogant or so or so caught up in your baby, you know, that if anyone says anything bad about your baby that, that you go, oh, no, and you hide it yep. from the world or you just say, no, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. If you go look at is the more I deal with uh, designers that are really successful and spend a lot of time in design, man, they're they're open to almost any idea you throw at them. You yep. play one of the prototypes, you're like, hey, could it be like this? And can we fit it to this theme? And they're like. Yeah, let me let me test that out. Like, right. You know, they're open to changing things, and that and they're successful in that way because, well, one, they don't just have one a one bullet gun, right. right? I think a lot of our designers out there they have one idea, yep. and they've worked really really hard to make this one idea work, and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. But it, it gives you more perspective when you have a lot of designs and you work with a lot of people. You've got to be malleable. You've got to be able to adjust that thing to multiple people's vision to make a team, unless. You're going to take it to Kickstarter yourself and, and, and just plow forward. Yeah, so. but even then, you know, if you're not listening, you might go to Kickstarter, you might make a million dollars, but have a really crappy game that only has one print run, you know, that people just yep. don't want. After the reviews come out and after all the, you know, people start playing it and they, they get a hold of it and they say, hey, you should have done this, this, and this, and maybe you should have listened to those people in playtesting. Yeah, and, and some of it, you know, 
some of it you can't learn until you do it. Yeah. You know, you can't, you know, on the job training. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that we changed from barnyard to grim, and there's still a few things. So we learned in grim. Uh, we had player boards, and the art looked great. It was fantastic. But we, the whole time, we knew we wanted to go to individualized player boards for each player color, and we wanted them to be thematic. Yeah. And so the, the original board we had was really just for prototyping and let people play test, and, and, and it looked good because I, again, believe in things going out the door that looks really good. And if we never got to those levels in the stretch goals, that'd be fine. You know, we'll, the, the generic board's great. So as we upgraded those, everybody kept saying, well, I really like the generic board. I don't want it to change. I don't want it to leave. Well, we can't put a fifth player board in the game when there's not a fifth player. It didn't make any sense. It would confuse people, and it costs – it's just throwing money away. Yeah. And yeah. talk about upsetting a certain percentage. I don't know what that percentage was. It was pretty small, but there was some very vocal people who did not want to see that piece of art and that board go away, and they fought it all the way to the very end. So we learned a lesson there. Hey, don't don't put anything out that you don't plan on putting in the game even if you don't plan on using it. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. And going back to what you said earlier about designers, the great designers, they'll listen, they'll try anything. I think the great designers have realized that any game is one idea away from being really great. You, that's you, right. You find that one idea. And even to your, your your situation, your company, you as a person, you were one idea. You were one game away from being able to quit your job and do this thing full time with Grim Forest. And so I yep. think the more you're open to listening to ideas and trying them out, and now you can't listen to everything. You can't just open your brain to everything. But really right. being able to figure out, okay, yeah, let's try that. Let's give that a shot. Let's let's see if it works. You're one idea yep. away. Cool Mini, cool Mini or not, small little game company, you may have heard of them. <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, they're a perfect example of that. You know, they, they were ticking along with a little game called Zombicide. And then uh, I can't remember the, the whatever blog it was that picked it up. And overnight it tripled. Yep tripled overnight and now i mean that is what skyrocketed and propelled them into what they are today yeah. Uh, so yeah i mean uh, every game company is right around the corner uh, every every jamie stegmeyer is just a viticulture away of really blowing up and you know i think uh you know grim forest is is that for us on a very very small scale compared to most of these big gaming yeah. companies and uh we've got two or three more coming down the line that I'm really really excited about that I think uh could keep growing on that so Yeah, for sure. Now tell me about Grim Forest. In case somebody hadn't played it, didn't catch the Kickstarter, tell me about it. Sure. So last year at Gen Con I met Tim Eisner who's the designer. He uh had a little game called Little Pig. And when we played it, it's a bluffing game. You uh you you set you go to a certain areas to collect uh resources. You gather those resources to build houses. That's the main premise. So you play cards and you can you're really – it's very Princess Bride, you know, Battle of Wits. You're yeah. looking around the table. You're like, okay, you're building a log cabin. You're building a brick house. I'm building straw. So I'm probably going to go to the straw fields to get more straw. But you might think that I'm going to go there. So maybe I'm going to go to the woods instead and get and keep you from getting the wood. And then you play cards to like, I think they'll be here, and you kind of buff what you're going to see. And then you, everybody reveals and you see what happens, and you collect your resources and do the next round. So a very, very straightforward game as far as that's concerned, but it's a lot of fun. And it was one of my favorite games that I played, even in prototype form. And, and uh, so I knew that I have an art team, Mr. Cuttington, who's done Santorini and Steampunk Rally and some of those games. And they're doing a little game called Charterstone for Jamie Stegmeier. Yeah. Uh, I knew that their art would be perfect for a fairy tale world. It's just like it was a perfect mashup. And so I had to – if you guys have ever seen um, – Saving Mr. Banks, the Disney movie about um, making Mary Poppins. 
I was Walt Disney and Tim was, uh, I can never remember her name, who wrote Mary Poppins. But he was like, nah, son, I ain't having none of that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't, who are you? Why yeah. do you want to publish my game? No. And uh, I wouldn't let him, I wouldn't let him leave. I wouldn't let him go. So I, I stayed on him for two months until he let me have it. Fast forward to March, we we got it we got it done, got it launched, got it out, and uh, four hundred thousand dollars and seven thousand backers later, uh, it's got eleven minis, forty five house miniatures. So overall, it's got like sixty plus miniature pieces in it. It's going to be an absolute gorgeous game. Yeah, no, it looks it looks amazing. But help me understand. Okay, I, I understand that you had a game and you went to Kickstarter to do it. That's that's a lot of people doing that. What made you want to jump in and say, okay, I'm going to start finding other games from other people, and I'm going to do that too? I'm going because that that makes you a really legitimate publishing company as opposed to just trying to you know do your own stuff. You're actually going out and finding people. So what got you into that? Well, to be perfectly honest, I, we weren't looking. We we uh, we have six or seven game designs that we're currently working on. But then when I went to Gen Con and I met Tim and we played it, I was like, it was just more of like an opportunity. Yeah. Uh, was right in my face, right? It, it wasn't anything we were looking for. And this happens more than more often than you would imagine in an entrepreneurial setting, right? Uh, a, a fantastic opportunity comes across your face and you either jump on it with both hands and both feet and, and grab it up or, or not. And so I could have easily said, hey man, that's a sod game and let it go. And then where would I be now? I don't know. We would have put something out, but I don't know what it would have been at this point. Uh, so you just, you really just have to find these opportunities and jump on them. I'm really glad you changed the name because Grim Forest sounds a whole lot better than what was it, Little Pig? Yeah, yeah, that was a good call. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he actually he actually launched that on Kickstarter himself and had to cancel it. Hmm. And so it it's a really great case to show and prove the the amount of uh, production level a game can and should get nowadays on Kickstarter you know it's a long uh, we're a long way out from the days of writing our ideas up on a napkin and throwing them on Kickstarter and getting people to fund it you know the the cool minis are not they've really changed the world where you've got to bring a pretty finished product to the to the table yeah i mean we live in a world where good is not good enough by any stretch I mean, you okay. might get funded. You might make 15, 20 grand, maybe if you, if you kind of get the word out and, you know, people pick it up. But if you really want to do something special, good is not anywhere close to good enough. Well, the problem, too, with the margins are so slim yeah. uh, on making board games that, you know, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000, all that does is commit you to work at making no money. Yeah. Like, you're not going to make any money if you just raise $20,000 on Kickstarter. Right. You're going to make minimum run. Your margins are going to be completely garbage. You're not going to have enough, even if it is popular, you're not going to have enough money to make another print run. You're going to be out of money because you have to spend it all to make the first run. Right. And it just, you, you, there's certain thresholds you've got to hit to be a successful business. Now, if you want to be a boutique publisher and you just, you want to keep your day job and you want to just put out what you have for our game ideas and you don't care about how many play it, there's nothing wrong with it. That's great. Yeah. But if you want to make it like your livelihood, it's a, it's a much different approach. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's so, so important for people to understand what they want to do going in. Like if you want to just self-publish your games, basically, that's awesome. If you want to have a business, that's awesome. But know what you're going to do going in because those are very different worlds to try to navigate. It's really hard, too, because when you know when we first made Barnyard, we approached it with a, hey, we're, uh, we've got three or four our game ideas and we just want to do like everybody else. Let's just put it on Kickstarter and see if the world enjoys it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my, my, my marketing background makes me want to make things look 
excellent. Yeah. And so that's why I, I, so, I sought out, uh, you know, Mr. Cuttington and got them involved. And because I, I really wanted really great art, but I found out really quickly that great art costs a lot of money. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> yeah. So, that, you know, that's, that, but that's just part of it. And one of the, the main things that I, another main point that I really hammer home in my keynote speeches when I'm talking to designers is if you really believe in your idea, like you really think this is something the world wants and needs, you have to go get a loan. You've got to get credit cards. You got to borrow money from Aunt Papa, who's got a bunch of money. You got to do whatever it takes to get enough money to make it viable at Kickstarter. Yeah. If you're trying to get by on a shoestring budget, you're going to get crushed. Like you're, there's so many games on Kickstarter, you're going to be flooded out. Yeah, I mean, any given time, there's like four or five hundred. Like right now, today, you could probably go on Kickstarter and you could look at four hundred different board game projects. And yep. a lot of them look pretty good. And yep. so trying to stand out, and, and it's it's summertime, and so now you're competing with family vacations because people are about to take a vacation, so maybe they're not going to spend as much money on board game. I mean, you're constantly competing with all these different factors. And so if you aren't on that next level, good luck to you. Yep. There's a lot of research that goes into it, a lot of game in the game, a lot of metagame when yep. it comes to Kickstarter. You know, there's a, there's a prime time between February and May. Yep. That's why you see all the big boys putting all their big projects in that window of time. That's why Grim Forest was in that window of time. It peaks uh, in April, May, and then it just is a steady decline in users and money that's spent on Kickstarter until you get to December where it just bottoms out because people are saving all their money for Christmas. And then it starts over again in February because people are still recovering in January. January is still a pretty tough month to be on Kickstarter. So you really only got 10 months. And then only half of those months are really good for Kickstarter. So it's a tight window. Yeah. Now, are there some things that you did to kind of really tap into that Kickstarter market? Because in general, family games aren't a huge part of Kickstarter. I mean, in general, it's, it's more like gamer games. You know, it's the sure. games like Scythe, you know, those Gloomhaven, yep. Kingdom Death, yep. all those these huge miniatures games. And your game has miniatures, and maybe that's part of it. But how did you, with a family game, tap into Kickstarter like you did? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, you know, Barnyard only did $17,000, so I didn't tap into it on what was a pure family game. And I still don't think people get excited about family games because it's, I think most gamers look at a, a family game as a, as a necessity. Yeah. Like, they don't really want to play it, but if they got to, they're going to have their favorite family games. Right. And um, so, you know, for me, I, I get that, and, and I'm a part of that, but with Grimm, I think – and this is where I feel like I'm going to go with the next probably two to three Kickstarter games that I do is that I like to bridge that gap of, you know, you could play this with your kids and you can enjoy it, but it's good enough to play in the gaming group as well. Yeah. And that's kind of the line I want to tow forever. I, I don't think I'm probably going to be doing many more games like Barnyard that are just pure kid focused type games. Because, uh, you know, I'm the same way. I, I want to play, uh, you know, I want to play all of my big, gnarly, dominant species and March of Ants and Eclipse and all my fun games. But, man, my eight-year-old, he's got the attention span of a gnat. So what are you going to do? Yeah, and I think what you're talking about is really where you need to be. If you're going to have a business, it's to have games that, that you're publishing that the family enjoys but more than the family enjoys. So if you, if, you know, because I've got friends that have a game group. It's kind of funny. They they start drinking when they show up. And then, <laughs> and so by the end of the night, they're playing like the simple games. You know what I mean? So it kind of like oh, yeah. start out with a heavy, you know, deep game. And by the end of the night, they'd be playing a family game. But it still needs to be something that appeals to gamers and in that way. And so I'm not saying 
people should drink and game. But anyway, that is what it is, and that's, that's going on a lot in, in different game groups. And so towing that line in the middle, I think, is the best place to be. Well, yeah, when you get drunk, you're reduced to the IQ of a child, so you have to play kid <laughs> game. That's the way it works. Exactly, but you still have the muscle memory of a gamer. And so, yeah. you know, your your muscles are wanting to make those decisions and all that, but mentally, you're maybe not all, all the way not there. there. Not there, yeah. No, yeah, it's, 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 hard. it's really hard because I, I've actually had this conversation with a few other people. You know, there's a – like Haba. Haba is a great company that has made their living on kid games and family games, but they have reach across the world. Yeah. So you can you can tap into so many different markets. Uh, Kickstarter is really tough. You know, you're gonna have a real hard time doing a straight up family kid game on there because most of the people who are willing to put their wallet in there are not looking for those type of games. So it's 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 tough. Yeah, for sure. Now all the games you have coming out are on your shelf and all that. Are they all family games? You mean as far as Drew City? No. Yeah. Um, they're, like I said, they're all going to toe that line of, I could play this with my, my kids, sometimes kids being like eight, nine, 10 year old, where I think that's where Grim Farce is at. You know, you've, you've got to be able to read the text on the cards and then execute strategy. So yeah. I would say I've seen a nine year old play it well, but I'm thinking 10, 11 is kind of where you're going to kick in. I think most of my games will do that. So like we got a game that we're working on now that it's going to be a worker placement game, and, uh, and I'm not really ready to talk about any of the theme with it yet, but it's going to be awesome. Yeah. And uh, it's it's going to have like that Champions of Midgard type weight type of worker placement game uh, just because, you know, to me, that's like a perfect mix of if you said, hey, let's play Champions of Midgard, I'd be like, yeah, and I've played it with my eight-year-old, mm-hmm. and he totally gets it and loves rolling those dice and trying to, you know, do the stuff. So you can make a game meaty enough that also, but also streamlined enough. I think that's the key: is it being streamlined and not complicated. Um, and then I got a, I got a crazy dungeon crawl that is going to do the same thing. Where if you've ever played Mice and Mystics, yeah. love the idea, loved how it tried to uh, make it family oriented. Um, it just really failed on the execution. The rules were clumsy. You know, it was really hard to get the kids, you know, you're reading the story and then you're trying to figure out how the combat dice work and you're all confused. So the kids are confused. So we're going to make a very thematic uh, dungeon crawl that everyone in the family will be excited about, but make it streamlined so that you can, you know, maybe only takes 10, 12 minutes to explain the rules and everybody's up and running and doing a campaign. Yeah, no, I love that idea. Mice and Mystics is actually the game that got me into the hobby. It was really the first games, first game ever bought and the first game I ever got into and like you said, the rules were a little clumsy, and I can see how families, you know, kids would get caught up in things. But at the same time, that was what, like seven, eight, nine years ago that that game yep. came out. And so, we, you know, we've come a long way in a very short amount of time with this whole renaissance in games. And so to yep. hear you talk about a game that's going to be of that idea, you know, that kind of concept sure. in a streamlined, better way to play it, I, I'm super excited about Because I'd love to play Mice and Mystics with my kids, but they're just not on that level. So to have a game that I could play with them, I'm, I'm pumped about that, man. Yeah, and I think, you know, especially when it comes into, like, say, the fairy tale world, like with Grim Forest, yeah. we all have our favorite fairy tale that we had growing up, whether it was Little Red Riding Hood or whatever. I mean, people were chiming in from all over the world on the Kickstarter page with, are you going to put the three Bremen in there? I love the music of the three Bremen, and that's my favorite, and I hope it's in. And, you know, you're just like, wow, I don't even know what the heck that is. I guess I want to go look that up. Right. And so, you know, there's something about the fairy tale world that draws us, it pulls out the kid in us. And I think, you know, when you do that, uh, the type of Cuttington art like they do, it just, it appeals to everybody. And so, yeah, we're, we're really 
excited about that and uh, can't wait to talk about that more when we have more solid stuff in yeah, place. For sure. All right, so let's talk about what makes a great family game. You know, is it is it just in the theme? Is it the you know having that grim forest, that fantasy theme that you know the kids love, that kind of thing? But I, I know it's more than that. So I think theme plays a big part in it. But tell me more about what makes a great family game. I think it's. I think first of all, it's it's uh, first and foremost for a family game, the rules have to be streamlined yeah. and easily accessible. If you know, if you spend more than five to ten minutes explaining the game. You are instant. It's instantly no good for families because I don't. I don't know if you're like me, but again, I have sat down with family members who are not gamers, yeah. and they glaze over on you if you go more than two or three minutes. Right. And I think it goes back to this is one of my core principles of when I'm writing the rule book or when I'm explaining rules and prototyping. It's how do I help people understand their options? Yeah. Right. And we've all been made to feel stupid before, and it doesn't feel good. And so when Someone's explaining something that they know very well because they're the one facilitating and teaching and you don't get it. And you have to say, oh, I don't I don't I don't understand. You feel you don't feel smart. You don't feel oh, when you get it. You're like, Oh, I got it. I got it. Let's go. I got it. Let's do it. Right. So those are two very separate things. I want to try to eliminate that as much as possible uh, for making people feel bad. Because, again, that's what I think pushes most people away from trying games. I mean, have you been around people that you're like, hey, Aunt Heather, you want to come play? No, I don't want to play a game. And you're like, well, why not? They're fun. Like, we're over here having fun, and you're over there being a sourpuss. Like, why do you not want to come play? Somewhere along the line, that person has been made to feel bad and feel stupid in front of in front of others. And so, anyway, I think that is a core element and something that kind of resonates in everything that we're doing at all times. How do we streamline? How do we streamline? How do we make it better? That doesn't mean remove complexity. Right. It just means how do you streamline? You can still give people critical choices and it not be dumbed down where it's where it's pitiful uh the next thing i think is, is it's got to look good man yeah. nobody wants to play something that doesn't look good and so the combination of the theme and the art and the whole package you know it's just got to look good and people want to feel like they're getting a good value for what they're spending money on that's another thing because families typically families are very value oriented and so if you've got a big 80 dollar game that's going to be a tough sell to families yeah. you know so um it, it, it really is. It's almost a checklist that you kind of got to go down and you got to prioritize it by, based off of uh, a few things. But I would say those are, say, three or four of the main things that I would look at. Yeah. Now, when we talk about family games and we talk about theme, I mean, there's a lot of themes that kind of get done over and over and over again. And that's fine because they're appealing and they sell. Obviously, if, if they weren't selling, publishers wouldn't keep putting them out. But let's right. talk about themes, and especially from your insight and talking about Grim Forest and you've got a barnyard game, you know, two themes that are very fam family friendly. But talk about theme for a minute as far as the family game angle. Yeah, theme, theme's tough because, you know, you you, you want to do something unique, yeah. right? You want to do something no one's ever done. But then when you step out there and nobody likes it and it doesn't sell and you bomb, then you're like, well, I guess it's back to zombies or I guess <laughs> it's back to uh, trains again, right? Yeah. So it's it's we're fickle. We're very fickle. We, we say, and I think we're inundated with the amount of games that we, like gamer gamers, we get all these games. We put a lot. We get on BGG, and we're like, I can't believe they would make another zombie game. Da, da, da. But Johnny Q Public, who goes in, to Barnes and Noble and walks by, this might be the third board game they've ever bought. Yep. So it's the first zombie game they've ever had. So you know, we I think we we kind of put our blinders on when we think about questions like this uh, because we're around our gaming group, but that's not who it is. We're all, we're publishers are selling to that group, 
but they're also selling to a much wider market that doesn't have 500 games. Yeah. It's a very yeah. small percentage of the board gaming, gaming community. Yeah, and I think it's kind of related, but a friend of mine who's not a gamer, he had played um, Patchwork, him and his wife. Yep. Somebody had given them Patchwork, and they loved a little two-player game, and they loved it, and it was awesome. And so he sent me a message because he knows I'm into games. And he sent me a message. He said, hey, man, I'm looking for some more two-player games I can play with my wife. And I was like, ooh, you know, and I just typed out game after game after game after game. This is on Facebook Messenger, right? And I hit enter, and it was this long list. And he didn't respond for a while. And I thought, oh, crap. I just gave him, like, 20 different options. And so I sent him another message. I said, buy these two. You know, and that's another thing. You just got to remember that that in the family game realm or even just in the couples games, I think couples play, you know, they like that family game weight, too, you know, if it's just two casual gamers is don't just throw all these, you know, don't inundate people with all this stuff. Just re- realize where they are <laughs> compared to where we might be. Yep, uh, it's 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 definitely it's definitely you got to kind of breadcrumb trail it and bring yeah. them into the hobby. Um I I mean typically when people come over to my house and they see my wall of games, they instantly go, you know, they're instantly intimidated. Yeah. Oh, you must be this board gaming expert. How can I ever even compete with you? I'm like, "Well, let's just play live dice and yeah. it's all yeah. luck anyway, you know." Um, don't worry. There's plenty of things that you can play. You know, yeah. you don't have to compete with me. And to be honest, I rarely ever win. I, 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 you know, this is one of the things we talk about a lot around our group is, is it important to win or is it important to have fun? Right. And, you know, I know some people are super competitive and they can't help themselves, but I go to, I, you know, I go, I go to have fun and interact with people and have socialization. So I, I've been known to throw a game before just because I know some of the people that I'm playing, it would ruin their day to lose. Right. And I would right. rather them be happy. I don't care if I win or lose. Now, if we're playing uh, Lisboa or something where I'm playing a Lacerda game and I want to see if my engine can finish out, oh, and then, you know, maybe, maybe I'll go a little harder. But yeah. I'm not playing any family games where I'm like really hardcore on having to win shoots and ladders. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great point. Now, going back to theme, any are there any themes in general – that you see or any insight on themes that you think would work really well that maybe haven't been overdone? You know, that's, that's tough because, uh, you know, it's one of the reasons why we went with fairy tales and, and why I got so excited about doing Grim Forest is because, I mean, there's definitely fairy tale games, but I don't feel like they had ever been done this way. And I don't think they'd ever been done that there haven't been overdone. Um, family games are even harder because now you're trying to appeal to something that the kids want. And kids have a very, you know, obviously it has to be very cartoony. It has to be very uh, appealing to, uh, depending on what age bracket you're going for. You know, no, I really, I really, I would, I don't like putting parameters on it just yeah. because um, you might go and make um, a train game that's the best looking train game ever. And people are like blown away. Like uh, every time Ryan Lockett does a game, uh, I'm pretty much just blown away. He had a, a prototype at a convention I went to last year that was a train game. And it was his, but it was his art. And I was like, oh, God, this is so awesome. And then he ended up changing it. It's now going to be out of that Avalanche, Yeti, Yeti Avalanche, yep. Yeti Avalanche Mountain, I think, is coming out pretty soon. Right. And I was like, no, Ryan, what happened to the trains? They were so gorgeous. And uh, he, uh, he was like, man, it made more sense to make it a mountain. I was like, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I think like, it's a great point. Kids really respond to the art. And so if you're going to make a family game, a game that kids are going to play, Make sure it looks a certain way. Otherwise, it's just not going to do as well. And I, I'm not really so stuck on certain ways as much as I am quality. And so if a lot of times I see people and I'm like, hey, I'll say their project. I'm like, 
ooh, this art's pretty rough. Who'd you have to do it? And they're like, I did it. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, let me remove my foot from my mouth. Yeah. I've started, I've learned to ask that question first. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, a lot of people want to, again, kind of tying back into that shoestring budget. They want to try to get by with as little as possible. Right. And they might be able to draw pretty okay. Or it's very uh, William Chung from American Idol, mm. you know. Um, you know, everybody's always told me I can draw really well. Right. Well, I'm telling you that's a hot dumpster fire and that's not going to work. Yeah. So, you know, you've just got to put money in, and go buy quality art and you can get any type of art that you like that you think is going to fit your theme and your audience. Uh, but you got to pay for it. Yeah. That's a great locket and you're a fantastic artist by trade. So play testing, we talked about play testing right at the beginning, how hard it is and how much time and effort and all that it takes. Let's talk about playtesting for family games. Now, Rob Davio was on the show a while back, and he talked about how they did it at Hasbro, and it was kind of interesting. They would bring in your your perfect family for a certain game. You know, you have mom and dad, and you'd have a 9-year-old and a 7-year-old, and the game was for 8 years old or above, or whatever. And then they would have a guy there that would kind of run the game, and then the designers would be behind like a two-way glass kind of thing, almost like a like a police station lineup where you, you, you can see the game, but the gamers can't see you kind of thing, which is super weird yeah. and just creepy to me just you know sitting there with a clipboard watching this family who doesn't know you're there uh, but anyway so that's how they did it how right. do you do it how do you do play testing for these games well unfortunately i don't have a cool setup like that and those resources um but typically you know we have uh, our friendly local gaming store so we go down there and, and so family games are tougher because typically families aren't in a friendly local gaming store <laughs> right and so what i what i did with barnyard is i would invite families over and just Throw it down in front of them and say, hey, this is a game I'm working on. Do you want to try it? Typically, people say yes, uh, you know, and then you just try it out and see what happens. you got to just use what's around you, really, because most of us aren't going to have a cool setup like Rob Davio. We're going to have a Hasbro in your back pocket to yeah. really rip off something awesome like that. So you just got to use what's around you. Yeah, unless I guess your your uncle is the police chief, and maybe he'll let you use your use the, uh, the precinct. Uh, libraries? Libraries yeah. is a good place, too. So if you make friends with a librarian – uh, they're always looking for activities to, to set up, and a lot of them will have game nights. Now, you know, you're, they're going to whip out Monopoly and Battleship and Uno, yeah. but you know, if you don't mind getting in there and wading the waters and getting people to try your game, uh, just, just have it to a certain level so you're not wasting people's time. Oh, absolutely. Don't, don't go in there with a scratch idea. Like, have a pretty well-worked-out prototype before you go in there. Yeah, that's a great point, Because uh, especially if you want these people to play your game again. If you want to be invited back. Right. <laughs> Now, let's talk about age limits. You know, the side of the box usually has, you know, 12 and up, 8 and up, 3 and older, whatever. How do you determine what that age limit should really be? Well, I think I think everybody has a general idea of what ages they think the, the mechanics of the game fit. But a lot of times that age number has more to do with overseas testing from products than it does anything else. Uh, so like on Grim Forest, it's going to say 13 and up. But that's just because, you know, we knew that. 10, 11 year olds would probably be the bottom end of where we, who would really probably play this. Mm. But for the, the tens of thousands of dollars it would take to be able to do the testing on all of our products. Um, it's really, you know what, to be honest, it's really an old thing that, you know, back in the fifties and forties and fifties when they made stuff that had lead in it and killed people and gave them cancer, yeah. it was an yeah. issue. It's not an issue anymore, but you know what? People have made so much money on it for so long. They're not going to change that. And so we just have to kind of, uh, you just kind of have to bend over backwards. I don't know about you guys, but it makes me feel good when I sit down and play with my eight-year-old and a box says 12, 12 plus. I'm like, look, my eight-year-old playing a 12-year-old game. <laughs> uh, I, I'm really the judge of 
what ages I think, uh, you know, my kids can play a game. So, yeah. Well, and that's a great point though, for anybody thinking about publishing a game that might be for kids is know about the, know about the different things as far as legally and that you have to pay for yep. if your, if your game is going to say a certain age. Yeah. If it's not 13 and up it, you're not getting into, uh, the EU shipping your game in without, the, the testing codes and the testing permits. It's just not going to happen or they're going to find the junk out of you. Yeah. it's a great point. All right. So let's talk about advice. What advice would you give somebody who's working on a family game or, or you know, has one on their mind that, you know, got some ideas. What's the best advice you'd give them? Best advice. Wow. Um, devour every piece of information. So Jamie Stegmeyer's blog posts. He has over like 270 of them. Read every one of them and probably read them twice. Yeah. Uh, everything James Math- Mathy, Mathy, Math- however you say his last name, Mathy, uh, every post he has, they're like polar opposites. They're like the devil and the angel on your shoulder. You know, <laughs> James, James, James is there to tell you that that's the stupidest idea you've ever had yeah. while you yeah. say it, tell the same thing to Jamie and Jamie's like, you know, I'd work on that a little bit. That sounds good. <laughs> so they're like two different approaches, but great information. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Jamie also has a book that he wrote on crowdfunding. It's a couple years old now, but it still has great information. Oh, yeah. I, I just see so many people who want to get into the to the business, but they haven't really sunk their their time into learning. Yeah. And yeah. then then I think the other the other thing is you got to find what you're good at, and right. then then like be laser focused on it. So. I found out pretty quick that I'm probably I don't have the chops to be a designer. So I quickly shed that and went to something that made more sense, which is more my talents of being more of a project manager and more of a publisher. Uh, does that mean that I don't want to take the designs that I've got on the shelf over there? I, man, I'm telling you that that arena game I've got has got two mechanics that hadn't been in games yet. And it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And I can't wait. I'm going to get I'm probably going to get with another designer who can really flesh it out and make it really good. So those two things, one, sink yourself into everything and consume everything and, and be knowledgeable about the thing that you want to do like as much as possible and then be laser focused on the things that you're good at and then hire and pay people to do the things that you're not good at. Otherwise, your project and, or what your idea is going to suffer. Yeah, and I think you bring up a great point. Never stop learning. Never feel like you know it all. Never feel like you're done learning mm-hmm. and growing and, and figuring stuff out because as soon as you stop learning and growing, you're dead. You're done. And, and things are going to pass you by. Now, do you have any like more specific family game advice? Like anybody working on specifically a family game that you'd give them in the, in that area? You know, family games. I would I would say if you're if you're gung ho and you have a family game idea, I would go pitch it. I would go pitch it to Haba. I would go pitch it to uh, Golly. There's a couple of other good ones that they're not coming to mind. But I would go to speed dating and I would pitch it because. The market's just so much – it's so much more difficult to get a family game published, self-published. Yeah. Um, and, and you're again, you're going to learn so much from – if you get to go pitch that to Haba or Hasbro or Mattel or anybody, right? Like you're going to learn a lot about it. And if they tell you – you know, if you get three or four no's from those type of places, there might be something to think about. Yeah. That's the thing. Uh, you know, again, talking to a lot of designers, you know, I've seen a lot of really bad ideas. And a lot of bad games, but man, you can't tell them. And even if you do tell them, they're not listening. So at some point it's got to click that either I need to adjust this idea and take it a different direction yeah. or maybe I need to start from scratch and do something different. Yeah. Be coachable. I think it's a big thing. 
Because another, another thing, even if a publisher is talking to you and they like your game and there's just one or two things that they want to see change, different mechanics, different whatever, and you're not coachable then, they're going to maybe step back and go, do I really want to sign this game? Do I really want to work with you? I like it. I feel like it has a chance and potential, but you're not listening to anything I'm having you you know, change, and so do I even want to work with you? Yep. Yeah, you know, anytime, think about some of the best teammates you've ever had, whether it's on a, a sports team or at work. It's And usually it's either somebody who was proactive yep. and somebody who was cheerful. Like those are two very good qualities about being just a friend to somebody, right? Proactive and cheerful. If you uh, if you're stubborn and negative and hard to work with, I, you know, I've, I've taken pitches from people who, you know, it's like I'm like I'm giving them some sort of honor, right? To right. that they let me play their prototype. <laughs> you know, hey man, you're pitching me again, yeah. right? Like I don't. So I, I tend, you know, I've already found some designers that I really enjoy working with because they're easy to work with and they're very proactive and they're hardworking. Yeah, for sure. Well, James, man, really appreciate all the insight, all the advice. We're about to head over into a bonus round. We'll talk to James about his favorite non-family games. So the games that aren't so much for family that are that kind of deeper, heavier thing. I want to hear his thoughts on that. But sure. Ja- James, really that's easy. That's easy, yeah. That's easy. I got three. I got three. My number one. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. We, we got to yeah. go into the bonus round. I got okay. to tell everybody goodbye. We'll do the bonus round in a little bit. I got you. <laughs> You're offside. That's five yards. Um, <laughs> but anyway, James, appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with everything you got going on. Sounds like you got some awesome projects in the works, and I look forward to seeing them. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at BoardGameDesignLab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting? Keep playtesting.